This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Olivia Rosenman. This week, we are in conversation with Michael Jensen, who is a Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Governance and Policy Analysis at the University of Canberra. Michael Jensen is one of the authors of this year's Digital News Report, which is the third in a series of annual reports that tracks changes in news consumption in Australia over time, particularly within the digital space. The report is published by the University of Canberra's News and Media Research Centre and is part of a global initiative including 36 countries and territories that is run by the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at the University of Oxford. This year, for the first time, the report included a chapter on gender and news. The chapter was co-written by Michael Jensen and journalist Virginia Hausegger, and it looks at how gender affects where and when we consume news, as well as the reasons that we avoid news and the kinds of news we consume. Australia was the only participant in the global study to report on the variable of gender, and according to Michael Jensen, this topic is understudied. I started by asking him why. My understanding is actually uh, news outlets probably are a little bit ahead of the curve uh, in relation to academics on this. There have been some cases in which there have been what they call pink versions of the news, which they present as kind of the woman-friendly news site. And of course, as the news business is becoming more and more competitive, they use tracking cookies and other metrics to try to infer a variety of things about their users, including gender, which they would use then to populate their page with advertisements and so forth to, to better target that. I suppose, you know, for a variety of reasons, it could be, you know, the gender composition of academics in this particular field that mostly perhaps they're male. Those are things I'm not 100% sure about that have led people to just not ask those sorts of questions. It could also be that there have been other research streams that are more critical or more interesting to than driven the the field, certainly in political communication. Uh, There have been a lot of research questions that haven't really touched upon gender directly. Genders mostly intervened as kind of an explanatory variable at the margins as opposed to the focal point of the investigation. Could you explain the methodology that was used to compile this report? 
Well, the report was based on a survey, but it's part of a larger project, which is run out of the Oxford Reuters Institute in Oxford, England. And we're one of 36 countries in which standard battery questions are being asked regarding news consumption and especially trying to get at how people are changing their news practices, uh, adapting to a digital era where they're consuming news far more ubiquitously on smartphones, on tablets, on computers, and so forth. And that's led to change in the way people approach the news, how much they consume, and where they're consuming it. And this is the first time that the study has included a special section on gender. Is that right? This is the first time the report has, yes. I mean, the the survey itself has always contained a question asking about the respondent's gender, which has enabled analyses to differentiate between men and women for particular types of questions. But there's never been a section that was just devoted to the question of how men and women more generally are consuming news and how gender differentiates, for example, uh, the reasons why people avoid the news or whether or not gender differentiates uh, people with respect to the kinds of news they consume. So did all of the 36 participating countries then write up a section of the report on gender? No, they did not. That was something that was only done in Australia. Could you just run us through the main findings? Broadly speaking, we found that men tended to consume news far more often than women did. That is, if you looked at in terms of the frequency measures, men tended to outpace women when it came to any of the measures of more than once per day. And they were also uh, edging out women amongst the most heavily consuming users of above 10 times a day. Whereas women edged out men when it came to consuming news less than once per day. And this suggests that men and women have different opportunities in their daily lives to consume news. For example, we found that some of the most significant differences when we broke down news consumption by the place in which it was being consumed, men tended to outpace women substantially when it came to consuming news at work. And that may uh, point to differences in the types of jobs men and women are employed in, such that perhaps men have more freedom to decide, I'm going to look at the news now. If you work in an office, it's not a big deal normally to click on a web page for the local newspaper or the BBC or what have you to consume news. Whereas if you work in a service sector or you're working in a capacity in which you're facing the public directly, you usually do not have that freedom to define what you do in those, those little down moments of your time, or you may not have a digital device nearby in your location of work based on the kind of work that that you're doing. So you said that men outpace women in the number of times that they consume news in a day, but did you have any way to quantify the length of times of each of these news consumption incidents that people reported? We did not. That's much harder to ask people on a survey about because often it's hard enough for people to recall the number of times they uh, typically will look at the news in a day to then ask them to kind of aggregate up the amount of time that they spent either across the entirety of a day or in blocks of time is often a much harder question to infer. And it would be something perhaps for further study in in the future that might involve things like laboratory experiments Or, in fact, you can do natural experiments, you know, the ABC or some other news production outfit, for example, you'd be able to run an experiment by inferring the gender of a user. And there are metrics that you can use to determine how much time people spend on one page or another. You also found that women tend to use social media for news consumption more, whereas males tend to nominate newspapers and online news websites as their main source of news. 
Is that just because women use social media more than men or is there something else at play here? Well, it varies because there's there's differences also in the kinds of engagement that men and women have when they are online. So there was more examples of women sharing news via social media. But at the same time, men you know, posting more on blogs, it's hard to really say that at least we don't have a theoretical reason why men use blogs more than women do or that women use social media to share more often. The differentials are not significantly large, so we're, we're really not sure what to make of some of those social media metrics when you break them down by the, the different type of engagement. To me, it seems like blogs are much more about broadcasting your opinion, whereas social media is more about having a conversation. Well, that's a complicated issue because at the same time, there's a lot of research in political communications that shows people are willing to argue with each other, for example, on Twitter. And so people of different ideologies will often conflict. They'll have long, drawn-out arguments. So it's hard to say that a medium is necessarily more conducive to certain gender norms versus others. And it may also be the case that given varying degrees of anonymity, there may be other spaces in which, for example, women might feel more free to be conflictual on an online setting than they would be in other settings. So that's a a much harder question to answer. So you mentioned the differences in the way men and women consume news at work, but the report also had some interesting statistics about the other different places that men and women consume news. Women were more likely to consume news in communal spaces like the lounge room or the living room room. And men were much more likely to consume news in private spaces, especially the toilet. So what's going on here? I can't really explain that particular statistic. Uh, We did find that it was rather surprising. More men used smartphones, tablets, and even computers in the toilet than women used (laughs) either smartphones or tablets at the workplace which was rather surprising. More broadly speaking, in terms of the distribution of digital devices and the consumption of news in the home, we suspect that, on the one hand, uh, men often have more ability to define autonomy in certain spaces. So, uh, for example, one of the questions asked about consumption of news in a personal space, like a study, and that, we suspect, uh, is a reflection of a gendered norm about a, you know, the, the male of the household having a study or a place where there's a computer or a place that he can retreat to relatively uninterrupted. And we found that was a significant contrast, for example, with those communal spaces where we suspect women might often be mixing news consumption with other household chores, such as minding children, making food, or otherwise taking care of the house. What about the devices that men and women use? Were there any significant differences there? Predominantly with respect to the use of a laptop or desktop computer in the lounge, we found a big difference there. Men were more likely to have access to that kind of device than women were, which suggests that women's consumption of news in the household is a little bit more nomadic because it focuses more on the use of these portable devices, such as the the smartphone or the tablet. Let's move on and talk about the subject of news interests. You found that men consume more hard news, which you define as politics, international news and business, whereas women tend to consume more soft news, defined as entertainment and lifestyle. Now, this seems to fit outdated ideas about differences between men and women. Were you surprised by this result? Not substantially surprised, although I want to complicate that picture a little bit. The first is 
that in terms of international news, we didn't find much differentiation between genders. So men and women, on roughly equal terms, men slightly more tended, showed more interest in uh, international news than women did. The biggest differences we saw in, were in terms of political news, which raises some questions with respect to the politics on offer. The recent legacy, for example, of Julie Gillard's experience as prime minister, and there's been a lot of commentary on the differing standards that were applied to her as the first female prime minister versus male prime ministers. I don't think there's ever been really a question asked of a male prime minister with respect to whether or not he had children or uh, questions that were very personal about details of, of a male prime minister's partner. So those were things that were quite different for Gallardo experience than typically male politicians do, and that uh, we suspect might be turning off some women when it comes to political news. Now, turning to the soft news aspect of that, I'll note also that we considered uh, sports to be a form of soft news as well. And then, of course, you see a substantial differentiation between men and women, where men were notably more interested in sports than women were, which uh, raises a number of questions there as well. Why are men naturally more interested in sports? Is it just because Australian society tends to promote male sports more than female sports? How might these things be redressed? Well, in some places, uh, they ha have laws regarding equal funding for male and female sporting activities in public schools. And that may do something to redress this imbalance. Or maybe we need to think more as a society if it's important to promote male and female sports on equal terms. You touched there briefly on the portrayal of Julia Gillard, uh, the recent, recently appointed Premier of New South Wales, Gladys Berejiklian. Her childlessness has also been pointed out in the media. Um, there are many, many more examples that one could add to a list of news that has focused on women in power's clothing, hair, weight, their love lives, their decision to have children or not to have children. I wonder, firstly, if you have any insight. What is so wrong with the Australian media that they seem to focus on this? Why is this still an issue in 2017? And how do we compare to other countries around the world? Well, I think uh, one doesn't need to look much further than the recent uh, presidential contest in the United States, where uh, there was a lot made about Hillary Clinton as the first female candidate for a major political party seeking the presidency. She made a point after she lost the election of giving a news conference where she didn't wear makeup for example, as a way of saying, you know, that I, I've worked so hard on the physical appearance because that's what's expected of a woman, whereas male candidates don't need to be so concerned about those sorts of things. Rarely do you find you know, substantial coverage with respect to the choice of particular suits or ties that uh, male candidates for political office wear. I mean, it's just kind of generic and nobody makes any, any mention or notice of that. So, I mean, she faced a lot of those similar sorts of things uh, in the 2016 contest. On the other hand, it's, it's not to say that, you know, questions about personal decisions, whether or not to have a family or whether or not somebody's married, matter in terms of political office. But I do think one of the things that we're still struggling with, not only in Australia, but in many other societies, is that there is a imbalance in terms of the way we think about family life with respect to gender. So, for example, it's not expected that men talk very much about having to deal with family matters. And so that's not just simply something that falls disproportionately upon women. There are other sanctions on the other side of that in which you know, men cannot say, oh, I can't make it to a meeting 
or I have to attend to family when this may pose a conflict with any other professional duties that, that somebody may be pursuing. And as a society, men have been socialized to kind of set family aside and make that the woman's burden or woman's duty in terms of uh, the domestic distribution of labor. But at the same time, that also deprives men of that capacity to say, this is part of my life. And obviously, this constructs who who I am in part. I think it was remarkable. Towards the end of his presidency, Barack Obama was asked if it felt strange moving into and living in the White House. Did that feel like a, like a home away from home, like you're visiting? And he said, you know, every night I made a point of tucking my daughters into bed and reading them stories. And that made it feel just like home. But it was because he made you know that a central part of an organizing part of his evening that bringing in those domestic duties made being in a you know the highest political office, at least in the United States, something that was not so foreign for him, and it made that that experience not not so different than regular home life. You're listening to Fourth Estate. My name's Olivia Rosenman, and I am speaking to Michael Jensen, a senior research fellow at the Institute for Governance and Policy Analysis at the University of Canberra. Another topic that the report covered was news avoidance, and you found that both men and women avoid the news, but they do so at different rates for different reasons. So can you tell us a little bit about those findings? Well, the findings... I'm not entirely sure what to make of them. On the one hand, you found fairly stereotypical groupings of responses. Women tended to cite more emotion-related reasons, such as it would upset my mood, I wouldn't be able to concentrate on other things, it was disturbing, whereas men tended to cite reasons that had more like uh, to do with it causes arguments or it's a waste of time. And so on the one hand, you find in terms of the male responses, a tendency more towards responses that that suggest, you know, this is somebody who has dominion over himself and is just avoiding things that would compromise that, whereas the female responses tend to reflect more of, I'm vulnerable and these are things that could upset the dominance and control of myself. Now, I don't know exactly what to make of that. It could be response biases, and that sometimes we find with survey questions, uh, such that women may be you know, more comfortable or willing to say something could disturb my emotions. On the other hand, you know, it could be a social response bias for a male respondent to say, I prefer to avoid the news because I just don't want to deal with an argument that could inflict emotional harm on me. So saying, I just don't want to deal with an argument or I don't have time, those can be things that, you know, in terms of the realm of experiences during the day, I don't have time for that kind of an experience, which may be an emotion-inducing experience. But we're unable to differentiate the underlying motives if it's reflection of, of gendered patterns of life or if it's more of a reflection of gendered patterns of socially acceptable responses. What about the fact that women are so much less often quoted in news as experts or sources? Do you think that has any effect on women's willingness to engage with news? We suspect that might have something to do particularly with their interest in political news. First of all, in terms of the composition of the parliament in Australia, it's predominantly male. Most of the figures within politics today are are male who who get interviewed uh, talking about various political issues. And so uh, we think that that may have an effect. There's been some 
arguments and, and analyses to the effect that it's suspected that newsrooms may also be predominantly male, which may reflect certain biases and so forth, that news is not presented in ways that are appealing to, to women. I'm not in a position to resolve any of those sorts of arguments. But I think it certainly, our data raises questions about the information that's on offer and whether or not what's being presented, particularly in terms of political news, addresses the concerns that women have regarding politics in Australia today. Another surprising result from the report was that quite a high number of both men and women say they have absolutely zero engagement with the news. Now, was that something that was surprising to you? How does that compare with previous years of the study? It's a little bit lower than previous years of the study. In terms of being engaged in the news, uh, we know, for example, from studies on Twitter users and engagement with news, they tend to be a very small subset of the population relative to other folks. A lot of people just don't have time for it. And it takes people with a significantly high level of interest in a particular topic to engage in the news. The other thing that we often find is that one's engagement with news tends to to focus more around key events. For example, this survey was done in the early part of 2017. We had our last election in uh, the winter of 2016. Consequently, it could very well be that we'd have different results if we'd taken this survey, you know, two weeks, three weeks after the election in Australia, where people may have been more engaged in talking about the election, the issues, the parties and so forth, that we'd find higher levels of sharing at that particular point in time. In the commentary that opens the chapter on gender and news, journalist Jacqueline Malley shares an anecdote about how the biggest spike in readership of Essential Baby, which is Fairfax's parenting news website, occurs at 3am, which is a pretty clear illustration of how new parents, mothers especially, keep to a very different schedule to that of most consumers. How much of the news and media landscape do you think tacitly assumes a male reader? And do you see any news organisations that have worked out better how to engage and cater for female readers? I mean, speaking as a father of a three-year-old, I've had plenty of those 3 a.m. situations where you're up late at night trying to get a child to sleep. You may just get the child to sleep, but it takes a little bit of time for you to get to sleep as well. And you may be you know, trying to research, especially as a, as a young first-time parent, ideas on how to address those sorts of issues. In terms of uh, more broadly speaking, you know, thinking about other sources of news, I think one of the things that uh, you find is that having a website, of course, means that the news is there all the time. And I think our data on uh, the use of portable digital devices also shows ways in which either intentionally or unintentionally news outlets may be addressing this because if you think back to a time in which the primary source of news was the 7 p.m. news program, that conflicted a lot of times with people who are trying to get dinner on the table, especially if you're thinking about traditionally gendered divisions of labor in the home that involved that a mother often was unable to pay attention to the news, whereas the father you know, in the household was uh, more able to pay attention to the news. And that I think is changing now that you can pick up a phone or a tablet at any point in time and kind of figure out what's going on. Other changes that may be happening, at least, you know, somewhat around the margins, are that we're finding a lot of news organizations are beginning to recognize a more global presence. 
And they often will tweet out news, not just once when a story drops, but they may schedule tweets throughout the day, which will hit different time zones around the world to kind of push those stories and and make them visible to people even at odd hours in Australia. In the past couple of years, we have seen both News Corp and Channel 9 launch news sites that are aimed specifically at women. We found out in this most recent census that the average Australian is a 38-year-old woman. So there's definitely money to be made in providing news that is targeted to women. Along with that go the advertising dollars. Do you think that, especially in light of your results, we might start to see more news organisations waking up to the fact that men and women do consume news differently and starting to cater for that? I I think it's highly likely, especially given how competitive news is today. When it comes to advertising money and trying to get click-through rates and so forth, that's becoming more and more a key business model for news outlets. It's not like they're selling any more newspapers. As a result, I think gender probably will become a more important variable because it's well known that gender is one of the variables that differentiates kinds of consumption habits. And there'll be things that'll be definitely relevant to women if you can figure out that a particular news story or a particular publication is more attractive to women they know they can make more money if they tailor their products for that particular audience. Is that a good or a bad thing, though, if we start to see men and women consuming different sources of news? There are some debates about this with respect to what extent we can really uh, fragment and segment our, our information environments. I mean, obviously, I think on the one hand, it's helpful for everybody to be part of a common conversation. On the other hand, any sort of conversation will have certain barriers because not everything can be discussed, not every viewpoint can be assessed, and it may very well be the case that you know, certain viewpoints or certain issues, certain ways of presenting ideas, for better or worse, resonate more with men or more with women. And so as a result, there may be ways or there may be a highlighting or framing of certain issues which are more likely to appeal to women, that women or men you know, may be more or less likely to sit down and read. And to the extent that that leads to a better informed public, it may be a good thing to have somewhat fragmented or somewhat differentiated presentations of the news. It may have been a mistake earlier on thinking that there's uh, just one ungendered way of presenting the world. On the other hand, it may be more useful if we can find ways to go beyond this kind of segmented and siloed you know, information environment so that you know, men can read along with traditional male presentations of politics or whatever else to get whatever they think becomes a more female-friendly version as well, just as the basis of encouraging you know, better understanding. This is the first time that you've compiled specific results on gender and news consumption. Do you have any predictions for what trends we might continue to see emerge as you collect these results over the next few years? Well, one thing I would expect, I mean, maybe not next year, but maybe 10, 15 years in the future, I think we'll find more similarity emerging in the workplace as women are filling out a wider spectrum of professional roles. I would would anticipate that women have increasingly uh, the same abilities and the same interest as men in terms of you know becoming informed about the the world around them. That may mean, for example, that in you know, news intensive businesses like finance or banking, we may find you know more women in those roles and and consuming news more often. And we anticipate also in terms of uh, staffing the ranks of interest organizations, civil society groups, and politics as well that the numbers of women in those capacities will 
will will increase. I guess I'm kind of optimistic that gender over time will become less of a differentiation in professional life and that we'll find that uh, more broadly, uh, men and women will just be in the same types of of positions and, and consuming the same types of information because that's relevant to them. Michael Jensen, thank you so much for your time on Fourth Estate. Thank you very much. That's it for us this week. Thank you for listening. And if you like the show, why don't you tell a friend about it? If they don't know how to podcast, take their phone and show them how. As always, stay in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter and do let us know if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. You can also check out our new logo while you're there. My name is Olivia Rosenman. Catch you next week on Fourth Estate.